In his novel, The Natural, uh, Bernard Malamud tells the story of Roy Hobbs, who's a teenage baseball prodigy whose career gets derailed by being shot by a psychotic woman, which, I mean, as like setups for a story go, like that's just awesome. Um, and 16 years later, he signs a contract with the fictional New York Knights, and he starts out as a bench player because he's a bit on the older side, but when he gets his chance to pinch hit, he knocks the cover off the ball, and a legend is born. But all throughout the story, Hobbes is motivated by one thing. He says early on, when I walk down the street, I want people to say, there goes Roy Hobbes, the best there ever was in the game. He's got this drive to be known, uh, to achieve fame, success, wealth. And Malibu dramatizes this throughout the novel by giving Roy this insatiable appetite. There are all these scenes of him just eating an, an enormous amount of food, like this one. Uh, his sensational hitting pulverized every kind of pitching. Yet no matter how many bangs he collected, he was ravenously hungry for more. And all he could eat besides. The Knights had boarded a train at dinner time. But he had stopped off at the station to devour half a dozen francs smothered in sauerkraut before his meal on the train, which consisted of two oversized sirloins, at least a dozen rolls, four orders of mashed potatoes, and three, some said five, slabs of apple pie. Some of you are like, that sounds familiar, particularly those of you with preteens in your home. But he's got this this physical hunger that kind of serves as this stand-in for this kind of ambition that, that cannot be satisfied. He gets, throughout the story, fame, he gets wealth, he gets recognition, but it's never enough. He's always wanting more. And at least in the novel, uh, the hero does not rise to the occasion. There's no happy ending. He doesn't conquer the inner battle. This insatiable desire for more leads to his downfall. In his book on simplicity, Richard Foster opens with this. Contemporary culture is plagued with the passion to possess. The unreasoned boast abounds that the good life is found in accumulation, that more is better. Indeed, we often accept this notion without question, with the result that the lust for affluence in contemporary society has become psychotic. It has completely lost touch with reality. Furthermore, the pace of the modern world accentuates our sense of being fractured and fragmented. We feel strained, hurried, breathless. The complexity of rushing to achieve and accumulate more and more threatens frequently to overwhelm us. It seems there is no escape from the rat race. And my hunch is you know what that's like. The general assumption is that wherever we are in life, that Happiness, that contentment is always just around the corner. That, that sense of peace and fulfillment, it's somewhere further on up the road. And the, the assumption behind that is that success or accumulation, those are the leading indicators of happiness in our lives. Whereas, you know, ha, you know somewhere, somewhere behind that lags the, the kind of contentment that we'll feel. And success is usually achieved by defining something, be that a certain amount of money, be that fame, be that status, whatever it is. It's always finding the pot of gold after we chase the rainbow. And it goes something like this. I'll be happy if I get into the right school. 
starts very early on. I'll be happy. Maybe then, after I've gotten into the right school, if I find the right spouse. I'll be happy uh, if I make vice president or partner. I'll be happy once I get that bump in my salary. I'll be happy once I get that addition onto the house. I'll be happy if I can afford that car or that designer. And that's the script that we know by heart. It's been handed down by our culture. And it turns out, actually, that we are pretty bad as a species at predicting what will actually bring happiness. In his research, the Harvard psychologist Sean Acor describes that this if-then perspective is actually very damaging to our well-being because every time we experience success in terms of a milestone or a, a uh, accumulation, we, we experience certainly a high in that moment, but then our brains and our bodies adjust and we just end up moving the goalpost a little bit further on about what success looks like. So if you get good grades, you got to get better grades. If you get a good job, you got to get a more prestigious job. If you win an, an award for your work, you got to win the same award next year or that year is a wash. And if you buy a home, you got to have a larger home. And this tendency is called the hedonic treadmill. And what it states is social, social psychologists and, and, um, and theoreticians that as a person makes more money, then expectations and desires raise in tandem at the same time, which results in a whole lot of chasing, but not a permanent rise in happiness. This is true particularly of money and possessions. I, I got a text from Christine Kerouac just a little while ago uh, with a quote from Ryan Holiday's book, Ego is the Enemy, and he puts it like this with regard to money. If you don't know how much you need, the default easily becomes more. Incidentally, if you want to know how to make your pastor happy, show that you're paying attention by sending a quote that's on the subject that we're talking about. But as I, she was uh, sending me this, I couldn't help but remember that iconic line and that story by John D. Rockefeller, who at the time in the early 1900s was uh, the wealthiest man on the planet. He had assets, it's estimated, uh, north of $435 billion, which just to put that in perspective, the current richest man on the planet has about $250 billion, so almost twice what Elon Musk has. And he was asked by a reporter, like, well, are you happy? Like, what would it take for you to find contentment? And he said this, just a little bit more. And I mean, it sounds so modest, right? But it turns out that the opposite is usually true, that the more you get, the more you want. There's a little bit of Roy Hobbs in all of us. We all have this endless appetite. And on a theological level, this is because we were made by God. We were made for God. So nothing less than full participation in the life of the triune God will ever lead to anything that satisfies our desire. And when we transfer our, our desire for God, the creator, onto the creation, uh, be they be a good things, be However you define those good things, the more we project our soul's longings onto things, the more those things disappoint. And you end up being enslaved by the pursuit. And this is nothing new. This is not a particularly modern American phenomenon. 
As far back as the third century, Cyprian, who was the bishop of Carthage in North Africa, he wrote this description of the affluent. Their property held them in chains. Chains which shackled their courage and choked their faith and hampered their judgment and throttled their souls. If they stored up their treasure in heaven, they would not now have an enemy and a thief within their household. They think of themselves as owners, whereas it is rather they who are owned. Enslaved as they are to their own property, they are not the masters of their money, but its slaves. And so we all have to live with this question. Do you own your things or do your things own you? Well, so if happiness and contentment aren't found in this endless climb after things, how do we then step off of this treadmill and train our hearts to resist the desire for the intoxication of more and instead come to find their rest in God? Is there a way to see material things for for what they are as goods to enhance life, not to oppress life? I love how the British intellectual G.K. Chesterton once put it. There are two ways to get enough. One is to continue to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. And throughout the ages, followers of Jesus have trained their hearts to do just that, to desire less through the practice of simplicity. And throughout the, we're now five weeks into this series, and all throughout we have defined simplicity as this inward reality that can be seen in an outward lifestyle of arranging our time, our money, our resources, and our attention around God's presence and God's purposes in the world. Or, as Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. It's to have at the center, at at the most purposeful and deliberate center of our lives, be the kingdom of God. And this involves setting priorities with regard to our possessions, our our spending, our time, including our digital lives, our, our social obligations, all of those things, so that we can live joyfully and freely in God's presence. And while there are analogous ideas to simplicity all throughout history and all across cultures, we take our cues from Jesus himself, who lived with this remarkable unconcern for possessions in his life. And we take our cues from the writers of the New Testament, both both of which who follow after Jesus and have a lot to say about the spiritual battle inherent in our desire for more and more. And so with that, I want to look again at that end of Uh, Paul's letter to a young protege named Timothy and as a whole this letter is written to a young pastor about how to pastor people in the way of Jesus. We pick up at chapter 6 verse 6. It's also up on the screens here. But godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it but if we have food and clothing we can be content with that those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs i'll pause right there because these are just 
simply brief statements about the nature of reality. And, and they often run contrary to the popular imagination, contrary to the assumptions of our culture, but even contrary to some corners of what goes as Orthodox Christian theology. Uh, Kate Bowler is the leading researcher on the prosperity gospel, and she describes it as this kind of virus that has gotten into the bloodstream of, of mainstream Christian thinking. And it's this idea that God grants health and wealth to those who have the right kind of faith, that to the extent to which we uh, become godlike is reflected by our financial gain, that God wants us to be wealthy, God wants us to live lives of financial abundance. It's no accident that the preachers who preach this gospel live in like massive, massive mansions. And, and, but we see this reflected in our culture. It's like, look at this vacation that I have. Look at my car. Look at my flawless skin. Hashtag blessed. <laughs> but I mean, what Paul is getting at is almost the exact opposite of this. That the best way, the best thing to gain, the best way to focus your time and your attention and your energy is not on wealth, but on becoming who you are in Jesus, somebody whose life is marked by godliness, this deep sense of peace and gratitude and contentment and joy and ease in your everyday life. And the reason for that is because we brought nothing into this world, and we could take nothing out of it. If we have food and we had clothing, we can be content with that. I mean, right, we, we, you all know this, we have all been to a funeral. The best things in life are not things, as the saying goes. And this is the dilemma that Paul warns about, that those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And I just want you to notice the gravity of the language here, because, I, I mean, I, I don't think we as a whole take Jesus and the New Testament seriously when they say that wealth is dangerous. That not only does it not satisfy, but that it can actually be ruinous to your soul. It has the potential to turn your hearts away from God, to disorder your love, to wreak havoc on your relationships, uh, uh, not only on your own lives, but, but others. It, it widens the gap between the rich and the poor. It does damage to the earth itself. And this is what he is driving at. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And I mean, this gets misquoted all the time. Uh, but I mean, even whether you are, are religious or not, whether you're new to faith or you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, you'd have to agree that this is a pretty solid read on the world. The love of money, the, the lust for more is at the heart of so much that is wrong, that is broken in the human condition. It lurks in the shadows of every system of injustice. It is behind every economic system that views some people as deserving of wealth and others as a means to gain wealth. It's everything from white supremacy and slavery to human trafficking to the systems that still live on in the dark corners of globalism in our culture where sweatshops and child laborers provide cheap products to people thousands of miles away so that we, who in the words of Roy Rogers, can use money we don't have to get things we don't need to impress people we don't like. 
It's what is behind the dehumanizing, multi-billion dollar pornography industry that is often explicitly tied to sexual slavery. It's behind the reality of so many broken relationships due to our own sin, due to our own misaligned desires, behind so much of what Jesus calls mammon. It's this love of money. It has a magnetic pull on our souls. And we just need to be real about that. Some people, he goes on, verse 10, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And I have to tell you, as a pastor, like, I've seen this a lot. People chasing after the good life, chasing after a life defined by luxury, wealth, things, slowly over the years will only find themselves far from God, far from their own hearts. And the thing is about these first ten, you know, these first four verses is that there's not a single command in here. There's just six statements about reality, about the way that life actually works. But he goes on. Uh, next slide. But you, man of God, he's writing to Timothy, he's writing to a man. This holds, though, for you ladies as well. Flee from all these things. And this is strong language. Run, flee, go in the opposite direction direction this is not what you are for but instead go here pursue righteousness godliness faith love endurance and gentleness fight the good fight of the faith and we hear that phrase a lot right but how often do you actually hear it in that context that the good fight of faith that paul is talking about here is the battle against materialism it's the it's not a battle against like you know the liberals or the, or the conservatives or whatever it is that we, we might think it is. It's a battle against the soul of materialism. He's, not, he's talking about the traps of wealth, what you might call a culture of consumption. Instead, he says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Like, remember the, your first love when you came to faith in the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Jesus Christ, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame. Right? He's like, make this a priority. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time, God, the blessed and holy ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. And he's, like, he's just preaching now. He's just going off. But, like, this is not a tangent that, that he's going on here. He's saying, run away from materialism and the trappings that come from a life of more and run toward the kingdom, which is the presence of God here and now. And then he finishes with this. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. Just an interesting connection between wealth and arrogance. Nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good. To be rich in good deeds. And to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And here Paul is riffing on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he says, store up treasures in heaven. But he's saying essentially the same thing, that 
a life of simplicity, a life of generosity, is how we experience the reality of the kingdom of God here in the present. Now, the thing is, if you are, if you are like me, uh, for many years, you would read that first line, command those who are rich in this present world, and be like, that's, he's talking to somebody else. He's not talking to me. I'm not rich. I mean, I know a few really wealthy people. Clearly, they need this, right? But it's not me. I grew up middle class. You know, I, uh, my parents on both sides of my family were the first generation in, in their family lines to get an education, to go to college. Uh, we had a home growing up. It was a, it was a gift. It was modest. Um, I wore my brother's hand-me-downs almost exclusively growing up. <laughs> At one point, my mom bought me for the first day of school. I think I was in like third grade, just at the point where I was starting to like, you know, care about this stuff. When uh, she bought me a pair of purple women's Reeboks because they were on sale. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. I didn't get teased or anything. They, they, they even had sparkly like shoelaces. I'm like, mom, come on. She's, we swapped them out for some white ones, but still. Uh, vacations growing up, if we took them, like, they were either camping or, like, going to a grandparent's house, anywhere where it was free, or occasionally, when my mom got a prize for selling Tupperware, we would get a trip to, uh, like, a San Diego hotel, and so then we would then pile in the van, also a prize from selling Tupperware, uh, my mom had it going on, um, We'd, we'd drive down, we'd, we'd pile into a, you know, all four of us into this two-bed single hotel room, and we would eat the sandwiches that my mom made and go to the beach where it was free. Like, that was vacation for us. So I never thought of myself as rich. I also grew up hopelessly out of touch with the reality of global poverty and out of touch with laws that systemically disenfranchise non-white persons from accessing loans, purchasing houses, subsequently amassing and passing on generational wealth. So all this is to say, just because it's good to traffic in reality, here is a look at global wealth distribution from our friends at Credit Suisse, who know something about global wealth. You may not be able to see it, but I'll, I'll try to interpret it uh, just for you. If you have more than a million dollars in assets, that's not money in the bank, that, that's your house, your investments, your cars, all of it, you are part of the global 1.1% or represented by that little tiny one singular uh, blue box in the corner of the world's population. And you also are part of what controls 46%, that large blue chunk in the table on the left, of the world's wealth. So 1.1% of the world's population owns 46% of the world's wealth. If you have anywhere between 100000 and a $1 million, you are in the global 12.2%. If you have between $10,000 and $100,000, you're part of the 33% of the global population. And those with less than $10,000 make up 55% of the world's population. They own a combined 1.3% of the world's wealth. So just to recap, the base numbers, 12.2% of the world's population owns 85% of the world's wealth. 
And it's not lost on me that the, at the top 1% has 46% of the world's money. The bottom 55% have 1% of the world's money. I mean, those numbers are almost flipped. And, and my, here's the thing. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm not trying to make you be like, ah, where should I be in this? I am where I am. I guess, you know, whatever. It's just to point out that many of us who do not think ourselves of ourselves as rich, we need to recalibrate our thinking a little bit on this. Uh, the Quakers have this saying, live simply so that others may simply live. And all this is to say that Paul's words are for most of us. We need to hear do not put your hope in wealth or in things, in your success, in your career, your possessions. Don't put your hope in those things to make you feel safe and secure, to make you feel happiness and contentment. Not because those are bad things in and of themselves, but because they cannot possibly deliver on that promise. They cannot do those things for you. Not only because they, any of them can be taken away in a moment's notice by a recession, by a global pandemic, by a tragedy or whatever it is but also because that is a way of just settling for something that is less than God. We need to hear, put your hope in a God who provides, who made the world good, who made the things in it, who called them good so that they may be enjoyed and shared with those in need. This is why he says, therefore, do good, be rich in good deeds, be generous, be willing to share, not just out of your wealth, but out of your status, out of your privilege. And in this way, you will take hold of a life that is truly life. And I'm guessing that's what we want. We want the life that is truly life, not a photocopy of it. The question is, how do we index our hearts away from that endless hunger for more and into the freedom of simplicity? How do we get that inward reality that results in that outward lifestyle? Well, our experiments for this week are two things that we see all throughout the witness of Scripture, that they are designed to train our hearts for desiring less, and they are uh, decluttering and practicing generosity. Another way of saying that is that they are uh, about making the intentional choice to limit what we own and to give of what we have, particularly to those in need. And each of those is not a, not a command, right? This is not legalism here. It's just an invitation to sit with that question of how much do I really need so that I can say yes to the life that Jesus calls me to and I can say no to all the things that aren't that, all the things that distract me from it. So just a brief word on each of those before we wrap up for this morning. Uh, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that the average home in the U.S. has more than 300,000 items in it. Um, and there is a fair amount of research, as it turns out, that connects uh, physical clutter with mental clutter. With like the idea of like the more things you have lying about your house, the more distracted your mind is and the less emotional stability you uh, experience. Again, one of those ways that, that Jesus was right. And I think this is like what is behind like the mid-2010s phenomenon that was Marie Kondo and her magic art of tidying up. 
I was saying, like, I, I have never folded a shirt the same way. Like, that's, that's real good stuff in there. But if you've ever had this experience of packing up your home and moving, um, you are astonished at the amount of things that you have that you, A, don't ever use, and B, don't even remember how you got them to begin with. Case in point, I'm a little embarrassed to admit this. Um, like, when I was you know, moving out here, I had Jill kind of go through my office at church. I didn't, I didn't have time. I was like, just put some stuff. And uh, she found a VHS tape of a Greek play from I, that I used when I was a teacher over 20 years ago. And she just lovingly put a post-it note on it with a smiley face that said, really? <laughs> and I was like, well, you know who you married. Like, it's, I'm a dork, so just, so, I mean, there's no one way to kind of do this, to do this, this, this process. And again, this is all invitation. It's an experiment. Uh, it can be really dangerous to turn this into a type of legalism, so this is just practical stuff here. Uh, but it's not complicated at all. And I would suggest, you know, going through, starting small, going through like a bedroom or a closet and go through with, you know, four boxes, right? Uh, you've got one for trash, one for recycling, one for selling or giving away, uh, and the last one for waiting. And that one's actually key. Um, so, you know, you'll find, you know, you go throughout, there's a lot of stuff you don't need, just, just, you can just get rid of it. Um, but other stuff, you'll find that you can sell, uh, and maybe it has some value, or you can give it away to someone who actually needs it. Uh, if you are a woman, Krista has organized a clothing drive for one of our mission partners this Saturday. An invitation to go through your closet, find the stuff that you haven't worn it since, you know, whenever, and, and get rid of it. It's almost like we planned this on purpose, right? Um, but the last box is the most important one, and that is the weight pile. And the reason that that's important is because we find that so much of the stuff that we hold on to is because we have this emotional attachment to things that we can't quite untangle or figure out. Um, and, if, and if that's the case, like, just put them in the weight box. Put it in the box of, like, I, I, I have a hard time saying that I'm going to let go of this thing, but let me just go ahead and put it in here. And then you take that box, after you've got those things, Put it away. Put it in your closet for like two months, three months, six months, whatever. Uh, put it in your garage, someplace that's out of sight. And if you really want that thing after like two months, like you know where it is. Go get it. No harm done. But I think you'll find more often than not that that stuff, you, you just, you don't miss it. Uh, case in point, I love photography. It's, it's been a hobby of mine for a long time. I would spend summers in Yosemite. I was just captivated by uh, the beauty growing up. I, I got to know this photographer named David Ashcraft, and he turned me on to this whole world of landscape photographers whose craft was like a meditation in the beauty and the awe of God's creation. And I just loved I was I was hooked. Uh, and I had started shooting with medium format film. Um, and the, I love the precision of that uh, because it's like you've got only 10 exposures, and you got to get it right. You know, no, no second chance, right? Um, I love the sound of a click on a mechanical shutter. Oh, it's such a beautiful, beautiful sound, winding it up. I'm, 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 it's, I'm having a moment right here just thinking about it. Uh, I love the magic in the dark room when you are, like, you see this image that you composed in your mind show up like, 
like you've summoned it from somewhere, bathed in the chemical wash. But over time, it just got really expensive to do that. Like the way that you know, digital photography has made film basically obsolete. It costs about $5 every time you click the shutter from, the, from buying the film to getting it processed. So, you know, I love the idea of my cameras. Uh, I have uh, more than eight um, in medium format and 35 millimeter cameras. I, I had 15 lenses. And one day, while we were sheltering in place, I just started looking at all this equipment that I had no realistic plan to ever use. Uh, it was just sitting there, collecting dust. Uh, and I'm thinking to myself, what am I holding on to here? Like, what, what is this attachment all about? Now, some, all those cameras did different things. I'm not like a crazy person. They really did do different things. I mean, a Kodak, it's, <laughs> but after a while, I realized, like, they're just things. They served a purpose. It's time to let them go. So I sold a few of the really nice cameras. I sold all of the, the lenses for them. And now, I just want to, hear me out here. Like, there was nothing wrong, inherently evil, in my having them. I used each of them a lot. Uh, a lot of the art that's hanging up in my house are pictures that I have taken. And when I let go of those things, when I, when I sold them, I, it hurt for about a day. And then there was so much freedom on the other side. I did not go into my closet and feel bad about all this stuff that I wasn't using. I didn't feel like, oh, I really should rearrange my life, you know, to, to do this more, to use all of these, you know, eight cameras. I should, I should... So here's the thing. Like I said, this is an inward reality, and it results in an outward lifestyle. And the thing is, unless you kind of identify, and this is why it took a while to like wait on it, unless you identify kind of that restlessness inside of you and what that is about, unless you invite the Spirit to work on that, you can clean out your closet all you like. You're just going to fill the space with something else. So the first part of that is to declutter, but the second part of it is to make the conscious decision to then acquire less. Krista gave me an essay from the writer Ann Patchett about her experiment of not shopping for an entire year. And she made this observation, which I thought was lovely. Once I stopped looking for things to buy, I became tremendously grateful for the things I received. And she goes on to say, it, it doesn't take long for the craving to subside. Once I got the hang of giving something up, it wasn't much of a trick. The much harder part was living with the startling abundance that had been illuminated when I stopped trying to get more. Once I could see what I already had and what actually mattered, I was left with a feeling that was somewhere between sickened and humbled. When did I amass so many things? And did somebody else need them? And she sums it up with this. If you stop thinking about what you might want, it's a whole lot easier to see what other people don't have. If you make this conscious decision to, to limit what you own, you will find that it's easier to enjoy what you have. Uh, I mentioned you know, before we started this series that as I was kind of doing the you know, research and reading on it, that I had made a decision to not buy any books for a year um, 
and uh, you know, a couple people have given me books, which is great, um, uh, and I've, I've certainly read them. But the thing that I, I have learned about this is that this is true. Like, once I stopped thinking about the next thing I was going to buy, I actually started to appreciate the things that I have. And my, my reading has gone up, like, exponentially, like, from what it was last year. I, I have this pile on, of books on my desk, about 12 high, that I've read over the last few months just because I'm like, I have them and I see them in a new way now. You'll find it easier to enjoy what you have. But it's also that you'll notice that there are others who may need what you have, which brings me to the last thing. That there is a relationship between our desire for more and our ability to be generous. One of those has us looking out on the world through the lens of scarcity. The other one has us looking out through the lens of God's abundance. And the thing is, anybody can be generous. You give out of what you have, out of what you are. And for some of us, that that may not be money. If you are in a space where you are living close to the line every month, the invitation is always to just start where you are. But but curiously, uh, a whole other subject, but... Uh, in, in reading about generosity in this country, it turns out that the people who make less than 20000 are more generous on the whole than the rest of the population. As, as a percentage of their income, they give more than the rest of the population. Fascinating. But anything, anyone can be generous. You can give of your time. You can give of your giftedness. You can give out of, out of your presence, out of the muchness of who you are. Give from that place. Find a way to contribute. But for those who do have extra financial margin, Paul reminds us that economic justice begins in the community. And part of the reason we prioritize giving here is partially to fund the mission and vision of this place, partially to care for the needs of our city and our mission partners, but part of it is just to free ourselves from the grip that money and things have on us. And so if you're wondering like where to begin, just start where you are. Start with whatever you have. But then watch what happens to your heart over time. See if in letting go of things, you don't experience more joy, more peace, more contentment. And I, I said this a few weeks ago, but a good heart check is just to ask the question, is what I have available to someone who needs it when it is clearly right, when it is clearly good to give it to them. And if that's true, then that's a pretty good indicator that your heart is free. And my hunch is that if you begin simplifying just a little bit, you will see how insane and how illogical our culture's obsession with consumption really is. We follow Jesus in simplicity as a means of turning over our hearts to see if there's anything so central to it, so essential to our life, that if we were to lose that thing, our life would hardly be worth living. Because if our hearts are tethered to the stuff of earth, we will look for our salvation in the things of earth. We will always be caught up in that endless hunger for just a little bit more. But if our hearts are aimed at the kingdom, we will find life to draw from in the here and now. And it is, the promise is, it is the life that truly is life.